0: It's Muppeturgy, and we're here to tally up the ways we love the Harry Belafonte episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! We love it. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. I'm David Levy, and here today with me are...
1: Michal Richardson.
0: Adam Grossworth.
1: And Christy Bauer.
0: Hmm. That feels like a different order that we don't do very often. We we change it up. It's good.
2: Yeah. Here is a Muppet News Blank.
3: We're here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 12 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of November 18th, 1978, and aired in New York February 19th, 1979. As we discussed last time, there was a big break in air dates after our last produced episode. It was number 19 in the air order, airing in between Leslie Uggams and Sylvester Stallone, which we have not talked about yet. In the news, C-SPAN launches today, bringing limited coverage of the House of Representatives to TV. What could be more exciting? (laughs) Also exciting, especially from the future. Disney and Universal are suing Sony to prevent them from selling the Betamax home video recorder in the United States. Oh, no. The filmmakers are arguing that the machines should be declared illegal because they allow consumers to duplicate their copyrighted motion pictures and television shows and thus reduce the economic value of this material. The outcome is expected (laughs) to set a precedent. (laughs) Oh, noes. VCRs cost 600 to $1,000 in 1979 dollars. Right? A I didn't even bother looking that up on the inflation calculator. Oh, just wow. That hurts. Yeah. Man,
4: just imagine, like, traveling back in time with that TiVo and blowing their minds.
3: <laughs> or mm-hmm. an iPhone. I mean, and that's, like, a cliche, but really. <laughs> mm.
0: No wonder we didn't get our first VCR until several years later.
3: Yeah, we didn't get one until i was 12 so like 87 88 on the Cashbox pop charts the number one song is rod stewart's i really want to say this correctly da ya think i'm sexy <laughs> i learned this week that that is how that title is spelled da d-a-y-a think i'm sexy
1: yeah <laughs> Yeah.
3: Also, I hate uh, yeah. I hate that song so much. <laughs> like, with every fiber of my being, I hate that song. I just don't
0: understand Rod Stewart as a phenomenon.
3: I don't either, but of all of the songs, like, that is the one at the top of my hate list. Uh, two songs I quite like further down the list. Uh, number 14, Don't Cry Out Loud, and number 16, The Gambler, uh, which will appear on future M- Muppet Show episodes. And uh, th- I, I just... I scrolled down the list very quickly, and at number 93 is The Theme from Superman.
1: That makes sense.
3: I mean, it's a great song, it's a great piece of music, it's a great film score. But I
0: mean, former guest Glenn Weldon recently went on Pop Culture Happy Hour to argue that it is the best piece of music from a film ever, best song from a film. You know, it's one of my favorite movies, it's one of
3: my favorite scores. It's a John Williams classic, but on the pop charts? Sure. I mean, if they're playing it on the radio. And they were playing it on the radio. of <laughs> these were weird. And I did, I checked Billboard and it did, it did hit the top 100 on Billboard as well. Rod Stewart also has the number one album. Our friends Billy Joel, Barbara Streisand, and Olivia Newton-John are still in the top 10. Right. Grease is no longer the word Aww. on the singles chart, but the album is at number 26. On television, on CBS, before The Muppet Show, on the Channel 2 News, I'm going to read from the ad... Some of the world's most beautiful and glamorous women live in New York. Can but confirm. the women you'll meet tonight don't quite fit this description. They're known as bag ladies, and chances are you've seen them around. I don't want to get deep into this, but bag ladies is a sure like of the of its time term.
1: I think I've read it in books more than more than I've heard it spoken out loud.
3: Oh,
0: it was a term that was used a lot in the 80s.
3: Yeah, like it was what we yeah. called it was what we called homeless women, but not men in the Eighties and nineties, or the eighties and seventies, I guess. And like like there's a character in Rent whose official exactly name I thought of. is Lady <laughs> with Bags, right? Not bag lady, but lady with bags. I don't know. It just like I in the eighties it was like, oh bag ladies, bag ladies, bag ladies. But like there's no male equivalent. And then it just, Well the male equivalent is Hobo. I guess so. But homeless man. It was like bag ladies and homeless men. I don't want to get too deep into this. I have nothing to say that's <laughs> insightful about it but it really like it just stuck out to me as like newsflash the media treats women worse <laughs> well and like and you know also Newslash, the media it treats homelessness and you know people who are suffering terribly as well right but i don't know it stuck out this whole ad is terrible obviously we'll have a screenshot of it in the show notes uh following <laughs> the muppet show on channel two in new york uh wonder woman this is season three episode 17 so this is not new but i don't think this has been in our monday night lineup before that is followed by our regular monday night friends mash wkrp in cincinnati and lou grant you know
0: wonder woman only lasted three seasons so maybe this was the beginning of the end where they're just like shuffling it around from
3: week to week oh maybe also every season was like wildly different from the season before so that's fun on ABC, uh, we have Roots: The Next Generation, Part Two. Something called Salvage One, uh, a one-season wonder that ran for 19 episodes. Harry runs a salvage operation in which he and his partners reclaim trash and junk and sell it as scrap or as other things. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Harry also has a homemade spaceship, which he sometimes uses to reclaim junk satellites. Okay. All right. Harry was played by Andy Griffith.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> great and on nbc i know Michal's waiting for it i cannot wait Little house on the prairie episode barn burner yes jud larabee the town bigot is accused of setting jonathan garvey's barn on fire
0: what's okay. jonathan garvey's crime is he like irish or something
3: yeah. <laughs> uh no john garvey defended the town black man <laughs> don't you think there'd be uh-huh. more than one town bigot at this time I'm just impressed they have a black man in the prairie. So I actually, of course I watched it and um, I looked this up. (laughs) The black man was played by Moses Gunn, who uh, did many things, but uh, the notable role to me was Booker T. Washington in the movie of ragtime. I was very delighted to see that this was not his only or even first episode because I was sure that they had invented this character for the sole purpose of abusing him in this episode. But he apparently was around a decent amount well, as good. was Judd Larrabee, the town bigot. So good for them? Question mark. I do, but I don't
1: want to see a band named the Judd Larrabee, the town bigot. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Judd Larrabee and the town bigots, I think would be the. No, Judd Larrabee and the barn burners. Also good. Yeah.
0: Also
1: good. Mm, I'm going to put that on my list.
3: Yeah. At least in the world of this episode, barn burning was punishable by death, but assaulting a child was not. The child had it coming. I mean, depends on the child, right? I don't know.
0: (laughs) If the child is
1: in the barn, how does that figure?
3: The child was in the barn. uh, Oh, well then. But I mean, then he left. It doesn't matter. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Following Little House on the Prairie is Backstairs at the White House Part 4. Uh, this is a miniseries obviously they're chasing you know the successive roots based on the autobiography of a woman who worked as a seamstress at the White House from 1931 to 1961 over four administrations Leslie Uggams who we're going to talk about real soon played the book's author it also starred Lewis Gossett Jr. Celeste Holm Harry Morgan Estelle Parsons Leslie Nielsen Cloris Leachman and others I am really delighted because I actually watched this a few months ago And I'm so relieved it wasn't for nothing.
0: Why did you watch it a few months ago?
3: Um, So uh, we have talked about uh, my friend's uh, Extra Hot Great podcast uh, many, many times. And it came up over there for some reason. And it sounded interesting. And it has all these great people in it. And so I got the DVDs from the library. And uh, I'm so sorry, Dan Casino, who I know is listening. It was not interesting. (laughs) 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 i shouldn't say i watched this because i did not make it to part four it i actually don't know how long i made it because i sort of had it on in the background and it just kept playing and at some point i was like why is this still on i have to turn it off it is very very boring despite having all of these wonderful wonderful actors in it um but uh check your local library libraries are great maybe they have it on dvd if you're interested it is definitely not streaming anywhere
2: and our special guest step is the amazing Happy Belafonte. That's Harry Belafonte, folks.
0: Well, that's a meaningful clip out of context. It's funny. Harry Belafonte, singer, actor, activist. Born in 1927 in Harlem to Caribbean immigrants, Harry's strong affinity for his roots was fostered by spending five years of his adolescence in Jamaica with his mother. He left high school to join the Navy during World War II and after his service ended, he returned to New York to study drama. He began singing in nightclub engagements to pay for his acting classes, and that led to a recording contract, first as a pop singer, but he soon found his niche in the folk movement. He incorporated Caribbean folk songs into his repertoire and set off a national craze for calypso music in the 1950s. He hadn't stopped acting, though, making his Broadway debut in 1953 in John Murray Anderson's Almanac, for which he won a Tony Award. He also made his film debut in 1953 and began making television appearances as well. He'd have his first of three Emmy Awards before the decade ended. 1953 was also the year of his first hit single, the song Matilda, which became one of his signature songs. His real breakthrough in music came in 1956 with the release of his album Calypso, which he claimed was the first album to sell more than one million copies in one year. The album spent 31 weeks at number one, 58 weeks in the top 10, and 99 weeks on the U.S. charts. It's also the album that gave us the Banana Boat song, which hit number 5 on the pop charts. More on that in a bit. The 50s also found him getting more involved in civil rights activism, which landed him on the blacklist. He was a close friend of Martin Luther King Jr.'s, and he supported King's activities as well as those of other civil rights activist groups, both financially and through hands-on organizing work. He also got involved in democratic politics, campaigning for both JFK and LBJ. He kicked off the 60s, winning a Grammy Award for Best Folk Performance, and he began producing for television, making him the first African American to do so. And you might remember from our Petula Clark episode that he broke boundaries on screen as well, when the two of them stood up to demands to censor a duet that they taped for one of Petula's specials. He continued to record, perform, and act throughout the ensuing decades. Most recently, he was in Black Klansman in 2018. His humanitarian efforts also never let up, including involvement with African causes, including being a part of USA for Africa and in We Are the World in the 1980s, prostate cancer awareness, and many, many decades of service with UNICEF. Nor did his political activism cool down. He has been an outspoken critic of the U.S. policy towards Cuba and of just about everything George W. Bush did, as well as being a vocal supporter of Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders. In 2017, he was an honorary co-chair of the Women's March on Washington. He's won more awards than I have time to list, most recently being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, 2022. And at 95 years old, he is the oldest living person to have received that honor. Uh, so that's Harry Belafonte. What are your all thoughts, feelings, memories, preconceived notions about him going into this episode?
1: I am aware of the songs that he sings in this episode and the other songs, that you mentioned in this list, Matilda, mostly because of parodies of those songs.
0: I was like, we're going to get to Alan Sherman, aren't we?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it doesn't take me that long to get to Alan Sherman. But yes, we can link to my Zelda.
3: I I mean, I know, that, I know this episode very well. This is one that I have very fond childhood memories of. I think the Banana Boat song, like the chorus of the Banana Boat song was sort of like, became sort of like a weird... I don't know if it like was a children's song or if it was just something that like my my parents would sing. Um and uh of course Beetlejuice. Uh and I was aware of all his humanitarian work. But like as a personality, it's like it's kind of just as an on-screen personality, it's kind of just this. Uh, which is, you know, not not too shabby. It's pretty great. But like his, you know, his music is 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 endured. Like I think just by its placement in things, right? It's it it pops up. Surprisingly frequently, and and I think this is a pretty classic episode. And like Beetlejuice uh, has certainly stuck around. So like, even if you don't know who he is, I think a lot of his songs, despite being of a very specific time, uh, have endured in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have expected if well, if you'd asked me forty years ago, I would have been seven. But you know, you know <laughs> what I mean.
4: <laughs> or if it hadn't been for Beetlejuice. Well, I mean, kind
3: of, yeah. But I mean, you know, that's that counts for something.
4: So, yeah, I I was definitely one of those kids who was introduced to him by Beetlejuice. Uh, and, you know, and I, I knew a little bit of his music going into this episode, but I decided to do a, a deep dive. And first of all, guys, I think I'm in love with Harry Belafonte.
0: <laughs> totally <laughs> I reasonable. Everybody.
1: I
4: hear you. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, especially in the the era of his Muppet Show episode, he was beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
4: Um, yeah. But also what an instrument. Like if you, if you listen to go beyond like his, like, you know, like uptempo Calypso bangers, which is hard because like you put on something like Angelina, Angelina. And like, I'm like, cool, let's play it five more times because I haven't stopped dancing. But if you, if you put on like some of his like jazzier pop stuff, Oh my God. What a voice, what a voice. But I am really excited to talk uh, about him, uh, particularly in the context of a, Prior conversation that we had on this podcast. (laughs) So, in my deep dive, I listened to for the first time his version of the song "Cotton Fields," which we discussed in the Teresa Brewer episode. And you know, we had this sort of conversation of like, "Is this racist? Why does this feel weird?" You know, it's it's a Lead Belly song. So, you know, it definitely was not written for a white lady to sing necessarily. <laughs> but uh, I, I learned something about the broader context of the song that I found shocking. And I brought a clip.
2: Yes, I was over in Arkansas When the sheriff asked me, What did you come here for? In and there Oh, cotton fields Oh, when them cotton balls get rotten, you can't pick very much cotton
4: in and there. Oh, cotton fields at home. Yeah. So what the song is setting up is a verse that is not in the, the uh, at least in the Muppet show version of the Teresa Brewer What? Version. No. So, you know, there's the line about, you know, grew up in in Louisiana, you know, just a mile from Texarkana, which is a, you know, town in Arkansas. And then there's this verse about being stopped by the police in Arkansas, (laughs) a mile from your home. Oh, yeah. The song is political. The song is, like, explicitly political. It just it gave me a lot to chew on because I was like, oh, suddenly the song has context. So, like, you know, when the cotton... Balls are rotten. You can't pick that much cotton, you know, like guy looking for work, you know, like the slavery connotation. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot.
0: It's interesting that as part of his civil rights activism, he also refused to tour in the South for a number of
3: years uh, because of the situations that the song describes.
0: Why don't you get me
3: started? I feel like we've tipped our hands, but Christy, what'd you think of this episode?
4: You know, this is an indisputably great episode and I loved it. However, in the broader scheme of the show, I got some quibbles. Really? Not, not not with Harry Belafonte, who is perfect and wonderful, and I love him so much. But uh, with some of the Muppet interstitial stuff, I think they dropped the ball a few times, and they kind of tread some well-worn ground in some of the sketches. But, I mean, overall, yeah, amazing. Amazing.
3: David? Yeah, great
0: episode. I always say that the way that I can tell a perfect episode is that when it ends, I feel like it's shorter than the other episodes because it's just gone by so quickly because I'm so absorbed in it. And that is definitely the case with this one. Uh, I wouldn't exactly call it a no skips episode because a little bit of Lewis Kazagger goes a long way, but definitely one of the all-time best, if not the all-time best. Michal?
1: Yep, right up there. I mean, it's not just a great episode, but it's an episode that, um, I mean, we'll talk about this when we talk about the finale, but there's a spirit to it that taps into what people remember nostalgically about the Muppets, this innocence and in their philosophy. Um, that's, I think, what people remember about this episode, especially. There were a couple of spots where I got bored, but mostly this is one of the all-time greats.
3: Yeah, agreed. It's in its in my top three so far. It's probably going to stay in my top five when we're done with all this. Uh, it's a Bad Pigs in Space. But, uh, yeah, that's my only... That's that's what keeps it from being perfect for me. Yep.
2: Harry Belafonte? 30 seconds to curtain, Mr. Belafonte. Thank you, Scooter. Say, uh,
5: is everything all right? Oh, yeah, everything's okay. Except, you know, I haven't even done the show yet, and already somebody started to put me down. No. Oh, what do you mean? Just now I heard somebody outside my door say, don't go inside that dressing room. <laughs> Crazy Harry's in there. Oh, well, they didn't mean you. You see, Crazy Harry's a
1: Crazy Harry? (laughs) Did somebody say, don't go inside that dressing room? Yes. So that was our cold open. Statler and Waldorf are not as enthusiastic about this episode as we are.
4: I've seen enough. Let's leave.
1: Alas.
3: Is that a repeat?
4: It feels like it.
1: I don't know, I've seen this episode so many times that I can't tell. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I don't know. All right. Anyway, Gonzo blows a little insect out of his trumpet, which the wiki says is a fly, but it's a little yellow dot, so I was assuming it was a bee. But it does this cute thing where it spins him around, and then he just falls over.
0: But there's a bee later in the episode that looks nothing like this bee.
1: Yeah, well, maybe it's a little yellow fly. That's disgusting. (laughs) When flies come in colors, that makes them extra disturbing, is all I'm saying.
0: The Muppet
1: Show backstage. Uh, so backstage at the Muppet Show, something's different this week.
2: Fozzie, this is not going to work. Just read off the page, Frog. <laughs> uh, Leggies and jungle funds. Leggies and jungle funds? <laughs> Leggies and jungle funds. <laughs> All right, so my typing is bad. <laughs> Leggies and jungle funds. Welcome again, tidy Mupple sharks. Uh, my name is Crimothy Forg. The Forg? Come on, pick up the pace. Here we go.
3: I always forget that this is the same episode as th- this is the Harry Belfonte episode. And so anytime I watch this, I'm just delighted every time that this scene happens <laughs> cuz I remember this and I reference it. Yeah. Like I I, I say like like and Jungle Fins, and I don't remember where it's where it comes from. It's just a thing that's <laughs> like in my repertoire.
1: Yep, I reference Leggies and Janglefins, Fins, and I also say Kermit the Forg, both, both because of this yeah. and because of the Sesame Street sketch, where Kermit is looking for his Kermit the Frog t-shirt, and they keep giving him Kermit the Kermit the Gorf, Kermit the Groff, and Kermit the Forg, which is the way he says the Forg, has really stuck with me. It's delightful. Fuzzy this week has decided that The Muppet Show is still missing something.
2: Ah, oh, Fuzzy, was... <laughs> what are you doing with this typewriter on my table? Kermit, I am writing the script for this week's show. What makes you think the show needs a script? Oh, Kermit, come on. Every show has a script. Yeah, that way you leave nothing to chance. Hey, guys, guys, hey, hey, hey. Here is the musical moment for this week. Uh, curtains open. Lou Zealand and Ralph do something funny. Curtains close. (laughs) Close.
1: It's so beautiful. I love this so much. This is something that I reference in my everyday life of like, when I'm just trying to indicate a yada, 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 I'm like, yeah, the current curtains open, Rolf and Lizzie Lynn do something funny. Curtain's close. <laughs> Fozzie's timing is just so perfect. The way he like slides over the, the I'm trying to say a typing machine. I'm not doing it. The way he slides <laughs> over the typewriter. Like, ugh <laughs> oh, I love this so much.
3: So just just to be me, dramaturgically speaking, it makes no sense that the scene comes after the clip that we heard before it. Yeah, when Kermit is already reading from the script that Posley has written.
4: That's my quibble. Yes, yeah. I, I, I think quibble. I okay. think th- this whole thing is like weirdly out of order.
0: I mean, if we're gonna be like assholes about it, yes. When- <laughs> When Fozzie <laughs> comes out at the beginning and, and he's like, Kermit, your timing must be off. You should be getting lots of laughs with a script that is
3: literally just, welcome to the Muppet show. Here's her yeah. <laughs> <hurry up, Muppet." laughs> Like, what the fuck? Well, yeah, right. Fozzie's a little bit stupid. Like, yeah. that That doesn't actually bother me.
1: I mean, it makes as much sense as any of the other things that have happened in s- similar situations. Where it's like, oh, the guest star is supposed to be on stage. Why aren't they here yet? Or, yeah. The fact that Fozzie is just typing this out as people are going on. And that Kermit is saying, what makes you think the show needs a script?
3: Like, that's all, yeah, none of that bothers me. I mean, also, like, there's no, if you look at a keyboard, there's no way that you could type leggies and jangle fins when you're trying to type (laughs) ladies. Like, that's all fine. That's just funny. But it just doesn't, like, why would Kermit ask? Like, I can suspend my disbelief to a point. (laughs) But then Kermit asking Fozzie what he's doing when he has already read from the script that he is writing is the part that I can't, is the bridge too far.
1: Yeah.
0: Agree. That didn't bother me.
1: It didn't bother me, but also I've seen this episode many, many times. (laughs) So (laughs) it just stopped registering with me. Yeah.
3: Anyway, still great. Still great. Yeah. Very funny.
1: Still great.
0: You know, I've mentioned on previous episodes that there are certain episodes of The Muppet Show that feel like they are designed just to showcase one specific performer. And this is very much a Frank Oz episode. Oh, yeah. He so runs with it. That, like, I, I'm willing to give him all the birth he needs to do whatever he wants to do, because it's just like, I mean, yes, good at his job, always delightful. But this Fozzie in particular, but all of his characters, will t- and this is why I will fight you on Pigs in Space. Uh, I just think he is at, like, a next level in this episode, even compared to his already very high functioning level that he's usually Yeah,
3: no, that's true. I agree with that completely.
1: So moving right along, Fuzzy, as he is attempting to script this episode while it is in progress, he gets himself into a bit of a bind. Uh, his tie gets caught in the typewriter.
2: Hey, Fuzzy. Oh, hi. Hi, Ralph. How's it going? Oh, well, gosh, I, um, I, uh, um. You're stuck, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this thing happens to all writers. This does? Sure, it's what's called writer's block. Oh, oh, oh. You, yes. know, you know where you can't come up with the next line. Yes, well, I uh, I can't come up with the next line. No. Oh, well, maybe I can help. Mm. Let me see what you last wrote here. Ah! <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is the sound of Fuzzy getting pulled by his tie into the typewriter. Uh, I love this episode so much. <laughs> and also, I just wanted to include this bit, because Rolf and Fuzzy continue to be this unexpectedly terrific combination. I don't know why I'm saying unexpected. It's Jim and Frank, just right. not with them up. It's you. But they didn't. See,
3: they didn't yeah. pair them as much as they could have.
1: Yeah, and but every time they do, it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, and we'll see uh, Fozzie's writing career appear one more time in the episode when he asks Harry Belafonte for guidance at the end. But we'll talk about that when we get to the finale. What I think is
0: weird about sort of the overarching dynamic here is. Kermit is the boss. So how does he even get into the situation where Fozzie thinks he's writing the episode to begin with? And like, Fozzie is so forceful and bosses him around so much. And Kermit just sort of takes it, sort of yells at him. But like, I I just don't understand. Like, you know, it's like (laughs) that there's a reading comprehension thing you do with kids when they're learning. We're like, what happened in the scene before what you just read? Like, What happened in the scene before this episode starts that sets this up? I have a hard time picturing that.
3: Yeah, I get that. But it's sort of like the episode where Fozzie was in therapy, which made much less sense. Oh, I (laughs) don't know. Met
0: Fozzie? Of course he's in
3: therapy. No, not (laughs) that. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that made sense. I mean, the, um,
4: the application of what the application right, the
3: to him and, right. the, Oh, you don't want to do your act. Okay. Right. Like that, that was harder for me to believe, but there is, I think we're, we're starting to see a dynamic emerge with Fozzie, which I think we'll carry through to the Muppet movie. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll carry through to sort of modern Kermit and Fozzie of like, we're going to humor the bear. Cause he's kind of stupid, but he means, well, he's real nice. He's our friend. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. And I think it's very sweet.
1: Yeah. I think even though this is the same Muppet show that had Kermit threatening to fire Fozzie, bossing him around and yelling at him, I think their relationship is evolving and they're friends now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think we will see Fozzie yell back at Kermit the way he does in this episode for very much longer.
3: Right. Right. I think that that shift is still happening, but, but I do think, I think Kermit, is finding it easier to, to humor Fozzie than to argue with him because it's harmless. That's fair.
6: Yeah. Yay.
4: More opportunities to profess my love for Harry Belafonte. <laughs> Yay. <sighs> so dreamy. Uh- <laughs> and he was 50 years old when they shot this. Yeah, dude. Yeah.
1: And smoking. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Let's talk about some songs. So the, the very first song needs no introduction, and yet it definitely gets one.
2: <laughs> that was terrific. I, I bet you must have sang that song a bunch of times on TV, huh?
5: No, no. As a matter of fact, this is the very first time. <laughs>
2: this here on the Muppet Show is the very first time you the sang this? Very you very first time. That's why oh. it's very special to me. You better dance. And to us too. I, I tell you what, we're going to do it up really perfect. Hey, pigs, pigs, come on in. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. your big chorus. Okay, and uh, and I'll take care of everything else. Don't worry. This is going to be
4: great. Are you sure? Trust me. What, what song are, are they talking about, you might ask? Let's just hear it.
3: Our clips are a little unusual for us this week. This is from the end of the song, and it's a longer clip than we usually play because, frankly, I was delighted and I didn't want to cut it. But if you haven't watched the episode, just know that many, many shenanigans have occurred before we reach this point.
2: delight come.
5: and
6: they I anyone
5: come with
6: you oh that
5: that and please that that can we can we do it all together yes sir i'm sorry there you go that <laughs> <laughs> that all right we said them we said them we said them we said them we said
2: they yay Seven of them,
4: It's Baeo. The it's banana boat song. Depending on who you ask or what side of the parentheses you fall on. <laughs> It is a traditional uh, Jamaican folk song, and interestingly, even though it gets credited as a Calypso song and was on uh, Harry Belafonte's album Calypso, it is actually more an example of a genre called Mento, the fresh maker. I tried to do a little bit of research on the difference between Calypso and Mento, and there aren't like a ton. So it's not one of those things where it's like, oh my God, how dare you call this Calypso? Like, most people are like, no, oh, Deo, it's a Calypso song. But it has to do with instrumentation. Mento is more Jamaican. Uh, calypso is more from Trinidad. And uh, yeah, there, there are sort of weirder, more acoustic instruments used with Mento. Calypso had a moment in the 40s and 50s, and Harry Belfonte was obviously at the forefront of this. And w- we. Uh, David mentioned this a little bit at the top, but um, Calypso uh, w- was uh, Harry's second number one album, and it w- was number one for 31 weeks. Think about that for a second. 31 weeks.
3: It's oh, bonkers. Calypso.
4: And yeah. yeah, it it was in fact the first album to sell over a million copies. Singles had sold over a million copies at that point, but yeah, long albums. This was the first one. It's quite an achievement. And Another fun fact, Harry's first number one album, uh, the album before this, which was just called Belafonte, was the first ever number one album on Billboard's Top 200 Albums chart. Hmm. But yeah, the song, as previously mentioned, peaked at number five on the Hot 100. This is delightful. This is <laughs> <laughs> the perfect melding of uh, earnest guest star and Muppet shenanigans and a brilliant showcase of Frank Oz.
1: It's so beautiful,
3: it's so good. I love it so much I love so the 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 bit that we played from the intro about it being the first time he's done the song on t v uh is true, and it was really important to him, and he let them do this to it, which I love in the book of Muppet Ten Men. he's interviewed along with many of the guest stars, but there's a a, a pretty long chunk of his um and it's also accepted uh, on Muppet Wiki. And he talks about this. He says, I, I seldom do television appearances, but I have always had the highest regard for Jim Henson's taste in artistry. So when I was invited to be a guest on The, on the Muppet Show, I saw that this might be an opportunity to do something very worthwhile. Uh, in addition to turn the world around, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, Henson had pointed out to Belafonte that standard material was also required to help entice the audience. <laughs> so basically, yes, we will do your very earnest stuff, but can we also do something fun? And so Belafonte agreed to sing the banana boat song. And, but like, I love that, like he, he let them do so much stick with, you know, something that, that obviously was also very important to him. And like, he's clearly having a genuine good time with, with Fozzie. It's great.
1: Yeah. This is one of the episodes that we taped off TV when I was a kid. So this episode is burned into my brain, <laughs> but I don't think I ever properly appreciated how much fun Harry Belafonte is having and the the performance that they get out of him. And The way that he just it speaks so earnestly with Fozzie, when Fozzie says, what's a tally man? And Harry just sits down next to him and explains it. And the way he laughs at everything that the Muppets are doing, the timing that he has with Fozzie, and the way that he like says, trust me, at the end of the number, right back to him.
3: <laughs> so good.
1: <laughs> it's so lovely. Something else that I noticed in this round of viewing is that Beauregard has these eyes or this eyebrow ridge, I guess, where he can like squint and open his eyes again. That like I guess I sort of knew because you're used to thinking of him squinting, but he plays it up when they're singing this song. And that's it's what
3: when the a few weeks ago when the sandbag hit him on the on the head, like that's what I was talking about it. You just articulated it much better than I did when I was like his squishy face is cool. <laughs> like that's what <laughs> I meant. Um,
1: yeah that yeah. part of his squishy face.
3: <laughs> face is really <laughs> is really expressive in a, in a great way it's great I,
0: you know i think
3: a couple times in this
0: episode you really notice that the muppet workshop has upped their game for season three when we talk about turn the world around i want to talk about the mouths on the african characters oh
3: yeah and the 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 liveness of this episode i mean obviously you know it makes sense very often for songs to be lip-synced and that's fine like i'm not troubled by that in any way but this is clearly a live performance right there's a lot of vamping i mean i i assume that there's a percussionist off stage who is playing for real and and you can tell right that it 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 helps the comedy it helps you know i I assume it's heavily scripted but it it feels real it feels natural it feels in the moment and
1: and he laughs while he's singing and it's wonderful
3: and it really captures the feeling
0: of being part of a joyful call and response Song like, yeah. uh, you know, for, for anyone who went to summer camp or was part of a youth group, or, or I guess like goes to like the right kind of religious services, like this is an experience that you can have. And, and even like, and especially the way that Fozzie is like sort of fucking up and whether it's intentional or not, like adds to the communal joy of the experience. And, and even just sitting on my couch as an observer, it, that felt very infectious to me
3: like even the laugh track not so much in this but the in, in the the drum battle like the it's not so much a laugh track as an applause track but like that felt more real and I know that it's fake right but they're like everybody's um, on their game in a different way because it all feels so much so natural and so so affecting
1: yeah I was really appreciating the sound design in this episode also there are a lot of tiny things that you don't pay attention to like the sounds from the typewriter. But the, the timing on the sound design in this episode is also a lot of fun,
4: along with the, the laugh track and the applause track.
3: Yeah, I want to come back to that when we get to the drum battle.
4: So uh, because this is a traditional folk song, that means it's in the public domain. Shout out to the public domain. But it also means that some people capitalized on that uh, in, in a very uh, sort of... Okay, the only way I can describe this is, you know that sequence in Dreamgirls where you oh, see no. the white people doing their version of the song? Oh, get, We're not going
1: to talk about Spike Jones, are we? We're going to talk about something else. No. Oh, it's
3: something else. I've heard it's the clip already. Else. Oh, it's no. something
4: else. Uh, let's, let's just play the clip. <laughs>
3: yep like you you sent me that before but until you described it in 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 dream girls terms i didn't really connect what was happening
4: <laughs> <laughs> yep yep it, it is a, a surf party song called hey yo <laughs> <Hey-o>. <laughs> uh
3: yeah so anyway that's just a List fun there hurts. fun I, curiosity i need a palate cleanser
4: Let's do it. Come, Mr. Tallyman,
5: tally me, banana. Daylight, come, and we want to go home.
2: Come, excuse me. me. I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, What is a tallyman? What is what? A a, a tallyman. You're saying tallyman. What's that? Well...
5: Well, he's the boss. The tallyman is the guy who who counts the bananas as they go into the hold of the ship. And without him, there's just just no work. He's a very important man.
2: Ah! C- could I be a tallyman?
5: Sure.
2: Oh yeah, oh, terrific. Okay, here we am, the tallyman or the tally bear. Ah!
4: Much better. That banana boat's a wonderful number.
2: Yeah, and look what they did to it. <laughs> I have a good mind to go home. you had a good mind, you wouldn't be here in the first place.
4: (laughs) Speaking of the public domain. (laughs) So we get a repeat song, but not in the manner that we're used to getting it.
2: You know T for two? T for two. I know it backwards. Oh, good. Because that's the way we want to hear it. Good, because that's the way I'm going to sing it rough eat and
4: eat It's two for two backwards <laughs>
1: <laughs> And of course he knows it backwards this is the at least third time they've featured the song
0: It's coming back next week. <laughs> Oh, my God. Did um, like, so- someone have a bet that they're doing it three weeks in a row? Like, what, what is going on with that?
4: <sighs> yeah, there's got to be some secret reason to this. Um, but uh, the good news is I found something new and weird to talk about regarding the song, which I just learned about, which is there is an orchestral piece called Tahiti Trot, which is uh, Demetrius Shostakovich's uh, opus 16 that... <laughs> it's from 1927 and what it is is uh, a friend of his made a bet with him they had just listened to the song so tahiti trot was the russian version of the song as a reminder of this the original song is from no no Net. it's a vincent human's song and uh they the translation in russian basically came out to tahiti trot and so Shostakovich and his friend were sitting around and they listened to the song and then his, uh, and Shostakovich was like 21 at the time and his friend was like hey, I, I bet you 100 rubles that you couldn't sit down and orchestrate this song from memory in an hour and Shostakovich was like, dude, you're on and sat down and did it in 45 minutes, won the money uh, and then published it <laughs> and it gets played God bless.
0: Did you bring a clip?
4: I sure did. Of course she did. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I made it's, re- it's really delightful, actually. It I recommend this to be the whole thing. Ah, huh, so uh We get some more bee shenanigans in our UK (laughs) spot. So this is a Floyd and Zoot duet of Honeysuckle Rose, which is a Fats Waller song from 1928. Andy Razaf wrote the lyrics. Not that that's relevant here. And it was part of an off-Broadway review called Load of Coal that premiered at a venue in Harlem called Connie's Inn. It was a soft shoot da- number, which, you know, it's nice to see people doing soft shoot, something that's not T for two. Yeah, and we talked about the B a little bit. It's definitely not like a like a blinking like laser pointer light, like uh, whatever the thing was that came at Gonzo in the intro. It has more like Waldo the Spirit of 3D vibes, I think. Yes a little bit scary.
0: So I I stared very intently at this bee to try to figure out, was it a puppet? Was it animated? Was it superimposed? Was it in the room with them? And I, for the life of me, could not figure it out, even on a giant TV. Did anyone actually know what the effect is here?
1: I couldn't figure it out either. No.
0: It's very impressive. Wasn't it? Like, it looked like a little bee. Like, there were little wings that flapped, unlike the laser pointery thing from the beginning. Hmm. I thought it was just
3: like an animated something.
0: Maybe.
1: But yeah, it was animated so differently than the bee or fly or whatever the insect was at the beginning. You'd think they would have animated it the same way.
0: Anyway, regardless of the bee, this happens to be like a great rendition of this song. Like yeah. they're not holding back. They could have just done whatever because it's there for a joke. But but this is a legit performance.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was a little bit mad that it was interrupted. <laughs> Such is the way in the Muppet Theater. So is life. I think that number raises a pertinent question. What's that? Why did they do it? (laughs) So, next, my boyfriend, Harry Belafonte, and Animal get into a drum (laughs) battle. Your other
3: boyfriend, Animal. Can you tell us about the composer and the publishing of this song?
4: (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Uh, Yeah, no, it's just, it's just delightful.
3: So we were talking about the, you know, the liveness of everything. And I I know this is probably not the case, but like, I just really want to believe that this was actually like live and improvised. And I don't know, maybe.
4: (laughs) It feels like it.
3: We talked about this a little bit um, with the Reno Moreno episode um and animals drumming and you know i know for something with something like little shop of horrors where you have uh, a puppet uh, a puppeteer and a voice who are not the same person that generally the like the the puppet the puppeteer is in charge and the the voice actor is like watching them for cues i mean also it's very heavily rehearsed <laughs> so that you know you're you're generally in sync because you're consistent but that the the voice actor would sort of take their cues from visually from the puppeteer, um, or from the puppet rather, because it's kind of, it's faster that way. It's easier. And there, there were moments when the the sound of animals drumming was just like half a beat behind what animal was doing. And I, I was like, maybe like, maybe Frank Oz is just doing whatever he wants. And somebody is over there playing the drums and, and <laughs> making it happen. Like I, I just, I want that to be true. Um, I'm also sure that they, you know, rehearse the hell out of it. Um, But they really look like they're having a great time.
1: Yeah, they're getting a little sweaty. Christy's boyfriend over there. Yeah. (laughs) But yes, this is wonderful. And then they do this little, they both laugh at the end and then they collapse at the same time. It's very charming.
3: Yeah. And there's like great little close ups too. Like, I mean, it's, it's, I know Harry Belafonte acted quite a bit actually, but it's, like I sort of forget that side of his career, and and he's he's really acting up a storm in this episode. He's got great reaction shots with animal.
1: Yeah, and there's no dialogue in this number. It's just Harry Belafonte doing a lot of things with his face and saying like, "Yeah, what do you think of that? What
4: are you going to do about it?" So we end with what is probably, and I concede that you know there may be something in the next two and a half seasons to contradict this, but what so far at least is. The greatest finale of an episode.
3: So this is another uh, longer clip than we usually play, but it's, uh, it's also kind of the whole explanation of the thing, because uh, we can't really tell it better than Harry Belafonte can.
5: And that storyteller went way back into African tradition and African mythology. He began to tell the story about the fire, uh-huh. which means the sun about the water, and about the earth. And he pointed out that all of these things put together turn the world around. And that all of us, we're here for a very, very short time. And in that time that we're here, there really isn't any difference in any of us if we were to take time out to understand each other. And uh, the question is, do I know who you are? Do you know who I am? Do we care about each other? Because if we do together we can turn the world around we come from the fire living in fire go back to the fire turn the world around
2: we come from the fire go back to the fire turn the world around we come from the fire living in the fire go back to the fire turn the world around
1: I love this so much
3: yeah i was like
4: keep going <laughs> I, don't,
3: it, uh, I don't know why it makes me cry but it makes me cry every yeah. time
4: <laughs> i mean <laughs> every it's be- time it's beautiful it's really really beautiful so what's interesting about this song is he introduces the song as being like, well it's like a folk song that I, I, I came across in guinea but he does in fact get like the writing and publishing credit for it harry belafonte and robert friedman are the the credited writers for it and you know I'm, I'm i'm sure it's a matter of you know adaptation of you know an existing yeah. folk song the, into
3: i think it's like a, a it's a it's a story like the the storyteller was telling the story and then he he turned that into the song i think is the yeah the jest
4: but yeah it, it was on an album called turn the world around from the year before uh and uh after spending a lot of time. Uh, recording mostly pop music, Uh, Harry had pivoted back into world music. So uh, this is the title track of that. And yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. The puppetry is really beautiful.
0: Yeah. Like I mentioned before, there's something really interesting about these uh, African mask characters that they've created where, their mouths work differently than we're used to seeing Muppet Mouths work. It's not the first time this season we've seen them, but I think it's the most elegant way where usually Muppet Mouths are large so that there's a lot of movement and like the, the whole head can move to, to, to sort of emphasize the, the talking here. They're, they're the Mouths are like within the head. Like there's not the, the, big flappy head dividing line that you get for most of them. So instead, it's just like lips that move. It, I'm not doing it justice, but it, it's really, it's a different effect. It makes them look more interesting, more realistic, less like a hand puppet.
3: Uh, it's very cool. Yeah, well, and they're, I mean, they're masks too, which, right? So they look like sort of masks come to life in this uncanny way, which is the point. They're, yeah. They're, I was also taken by their hands uh, one of them in particular, they're all playing little percussion instruments, little shakers and things right? and they're, I think because of that, right, their hands don't move the way we're used to seeing Muppet hands moving either which I think is just by, by virtue of the action that they're doing but it's still really noticeable so yeah, I mean, if you, if you haven't watched this episode I mean, first of all, how have we not convinced you yet to go and watch this episode, but yeah, these are four um, African masks and, you know, which, you know we, we, are, we are often very quick to call things out as problematic on this podcast. Uh, so this is also from uh, Of Muppets and Men, that when the song was chosen for the show, the designers at the Muppet Workshop did background research on African masks to serve as the chorus. While these would be patterned very closely on real African masks, Henson was very particular about selecting the final designs, since, as Belafonte recalled, he didn't want to cause offense by choosing masks that would have some religious or national significance. So, you know, I think if you were doing this now, this probably would not be the choice. You, uh, you know, certainly if, if I were producing this now, I, I would probably say, like, let's incorporate some actual puppetry uh, from Guinea or something like that. Um, but this was certainly done thoughtfully. It was done with Harry Belafonte's input. And I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's my take. It's gorgeous. Um, it is. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I don't have
0: quite the same emotional reaction to this that you all do, but I was watching it tonight at home and two things happen first after harry belafonte does his introduction keith says to me like god he talks to the muppets like he's just on a talk show like calmly explaining his philosophy to the host and it's so engaging and so endearing and you you really believe that like world peace could happen if everyone mm-hmm. could just listen to him which is really true and yeah. i'm like yeah, and it, isn't it interesting that the album that this came from, which focused on world music and had this kind of theme to it, did not get released in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and then the other thing is that I said, you know, I like, did not get emotional during it, and I was like, oh, and you know, Uh, Harry Belafonte performed this at Jim Henson's funeral, and just saying that sentence, I started to tear up. (laughs) Yeah,
3: yeah, and that's there is a, you know, we'll put that YouTube video in the show notes. Um, Yeah, it's And these- Is there anyone else's funeral who you just watch on (laughs) YouTube
0: over and over and over again? Maybe Michael Bennett. (laughs) Back to the masks,
3: the three of the four masks are um, on display at the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta, so I have seen them up close and I'll put some photos, very non-professional photos uh, in the show notes as well. And, you know, I don't know if this is like a, a product of the museum, like restoration and preservation, but they really do look like they're carved out of wood too, which I think is part of what makes them look, you know, they look Muppety, but they don't look like regular Muppets. They are, they are really quite, beautiful and quite detailed for something that uh, I believe did get used a couple more times, but it was really only intended to be used once.
0: One of the masks I noticed feels almost like a prototype for Clifford, the the Muppet that uh, Kevin Clash will perform in the eighties and really in the nineties, who becomes the the host of Muppets tonight and is sort of the like one Muppet who is sort of like canonically black, even though he's actually purple. What's interesting is that that is the one that is not on display at the Center for Puppetry Arts. And mm-hmm. I do wonder if like they use that structure to construct Clifford. Cause it really is like the shape of the face and the shape of the hair is the same. Obviously the colors and everything are different in the textures, but. Uh,
1: Maybe, what- but also puppets just disintegrate. I was assuming that three out of four, like, lasted or at some point somebody thought to preserve them and for one of them it was
0: too late I guess it's just such a unique shape that we don't it's not like like there's a whatnot Muppet that has that head shape that we see over and over again you know
1: yeah it's possible but yes these masks are very cool and very striking and still what gets me is at the end of the song the whole chorus of Muppet show Muppets just come in singing the song and they all join together and they keep singing over the credits.
0: That was great. And that that also caught me so by surprise because like I said, I wasn't ready for the episode to end. Yeah. And it yeah. feels like maybe they weren't either. <laughs> so like they just tried to get every last second of Showtime they could by running the credits over this number.
3: And then they do this neat musical trick that uh, Gonzo starts playing his trumpet and it, it actually it turns into the closing theme and it blends with the song, which I mean, they've never done this before, right? It's always... They've they changed the theme. they changed the theme, but they haven't they haven't blended it into a song. like Right, that. we always get yeah. a, a Statler and Waldorf tag, or you know, or something in its place. Um, and
0: here Statler
1: and Waldorf sing along. I it know. melted their ice cold hearts.
0: <laughs> Just like and pa. even Zook gets to play the right note at the end.
4: Yeah.
1: Like i
3: love this so much
0: <laughs> i have to admit i did not catch that he was playing a variation of the Mobeshire theme song until you pointed it out
3: i i got that for, so i have because this song is hard to find um like in my iTunes I have uh, I think a live recording of it and I years ago like ripped this from the episode so it lives in my iTunes so I have heard this like this entire track dozens of times and didn't realize that's what was happening until I read it on the wiki (laughs) I was like oh yeah it's very cool
1: that is very cool I didn't notice it either until you pointed it out but it's so great I've been reading the book "How to Be Perfect" by Mike Scher, which is um, kind of an exploration of the moral philosophy that they used in writing the good place. Um, so i've I've been thinking a lot about morality and what we owe to each other and if there's any possibility for humankind um, to turn out okay um. I love that the introduction that Harry Belafonte gives to this song feels like it connects to that idea that the only way we're going to make it through this thing is if we help each other out, mm. people. Yeah, but it, it doesn't surprise me that this song is also a Unitarian Universalist hymn now.
2: Never one, that jazz! Listen, turkey!
1: What? And get out of show business! All right. As though anything could possibly follow, turn the world around. Let's talk about... Uh, a couple of the more skippable moments of this episode. So this week on Pigs in Space, Dr. Strange Pork introduces his Dissolvatron, which dissolves items out of one location and reconstitutes them in another location. It also turns into a body-switching machine, and mayhem ensues.
2: <laughs> and there you are. Exactly as we were before. What <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not exactly. But but this is terrible. I can't live my life being you. (laughs) You think you got troubles? Of course, I am kind of cute this way. I want it, want it! Don't you dare touch you!
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is so much fun to see what I assume is Jim puppeteering Miss Piggy and Frank puppeteering Link. Either that's what's happening or they do a very good impersonation of each other's styles.
3: Why isn't it a teleporter?
1: Because it's more fun to say dissolve maybe? Okay, fine. He also does a neat trick where um, Dr. Strangefork steals Miss Piggy's drink. She has this little cup of green juice with a straw in it. He dissolves it and brings it over to his side of the spaceship and drinks it. And every time his drink with a straw, I want to know how they did it. I don't know how they did it. I can't tell you. I can tell you that there's a wiki page called Muppets with anatomically functioning mouths.
3: Yeah. I don't like, I don't like it. <laughs> so the <page> is. <laughs> I don't is like that for anything at all. The,
1: as the title makes it
3: sound. <laughs> it's always on a table. So I assume it's from underneath.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming there's like, they're suctioning it out or there's a,
0: a uh, syringe
1: or, but I don't know.
0: You're right. Uh, it had not ever occurred to me that the, that maybe it's just going out through the bottom. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Just to- I was like coming up with all these like elaborate ways where like when the the straw goes into the mouth, like what they could have in their hand that attaches to it that might suck it up. But like, nope.
3: oh, yeah. A straw on a bottom with someone's thumb over the end of it. And then they take their thumb off and the liquid comes out. You're so smart. I try. <laughs> Sometimes I'm very stupid, but try for balance.
1: Shall we talk about Muppet Sports? Oh, let's. Okay, in the wild world of Muppet Sports this week, there is not much to see, or nah. at least not if you're one of <laughs> uh, not if you're one of uh, the participants in this sporting event. It's the blindfold sprint, and everyone, including the medics, is blindfolded. And
6: we have a winner, and we need
3: a stretcher. There's <laughs> really nothing to clip in that, but you know, yeah,
1: they can't see. That's the joke. It makes me uncomfortable.
3: Why does it make you uncomfortable?
1: Because it feels like a a very quick jump into making fun of blind people. I
3: guess that's true. That's uh, yeah. They're not they're not actually blind, but yeah, I see your point. It reminded me very much of the Monty Python sketch, "The Upper Class Twit of the Year." The joke there is that they're so stupid that they don't know how to run the race, um, but the visual is basically the same. They're running around and crashing into each other um, because they, they don't know where to go or what to do. And it, it's like sort of an identical sketch without the blindfolds. But you know, upper-class twit is a very British joke that I don't think you could quite pull off on The Muppet Show.
1: It did feel a lot like the SNL sketches with Governor Patterson, where at the end of the sketch, he would just <laughs> like wander into the camera.
3: Yes, which... We're ableist, but he was our governor and it was really fun making fun of him. I'd forgotten all about this.
1: <laughs> I mean that that's the answer to why this makes me uncomfortable.
3: Yeah, no, no, I get it. I get it.
1: Anyway, we love this episode.
0: <laughs> because the end of this episode is just the the song continuing on. We don't get an ending Statler and Waldorf clip, so we have no way to get out of Muppet So we're gonna be talking to you forever.
4: How convenient. I just- I do have one final thought, which is a thing that I forgot to mention earlier in my, you know, lovesick haze. Uh, Cool thing about Harry Belafonte, I, my last apartment in New York, I used to live a block from the Harry Belafonte Library, which was dedicated in his honor in 2017. And and looking into it, I learned that when it was dedicated, he was the first person in a hundred years to have a library in the New York Public Library System named after them. So- excellent. It's awesome. And it's a very good library. It's on 115th Street. It's very cozy. Yeah.
3: Do they have bananas?
4: (laughs) No bananas. Yes, they
0: have no bananas. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week to get clued in on the Leslie Ann Warren episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Lovey.